There are a couple of new faces in the congregation, and uh, yeah, I just want to say that uh, we value the fact that you're here with us today. You know, we recognize that you could have been anywhere in the world right now, and you made a decision to be here with us today. And so we want to honor your decision. We want to say thank you for showing up and participating in what it is that God is doing here in us and through us today. And we pray that our service in its entirety would be a blessing to you because our desire is to exalt the name of Jesus. And because our desire is to exalt the name of Jesus, we want to invite you into that with us. Jesus is our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our Master. We are His servants. And we love to serve Him. We love to honor Him. And we love to lift up His name. And so if you are a Christian and you are visiting with us, you have officially been invited to do that very thing with us today because that's what the church exists to do. To give glory to God. And that's what our goal is this morning. Let me, uh, let me ask a question. Raise your hand if you are as excited as I am for the upcoming Easter holiday and the fact that we're doing baptisms. Baptisms are just, they're exciting. Like, I think I cry every time somebody gets baptized. And that's okay, like, for the men in here to hear that, like, another man cries. It's, it's a good thing. Rob, did you shed a tear when your son was baptized? Nope. Lies! <laughs> We've got it on video, so, you know, <laughs> he's going to answer for that one to you, and then he's going to answer for that one to God in the future. <laughs> Stunt double. So, you know, with Easter fast approaching, it's on the horizon, right? And it will be here before we know it. So I want to take this morning to extend a challenge to our family, because that's what we talk about here. We talk about our body as a family. The challenge that I'd like to extend is that we would be praying over the next few weeks, but it goes beyond just praying over the next few weeks. It goes to being deliberate. The goal is to be deliberate in setting aside time each week to intercede on the behalf of all who will be present on Easter morning. Like, it's not a mystery to us. If everybody looks around the room right now, there are a bunch of empty seats in the house. We are a small church, and this is an average Sunday for us, and we are satisfied with our church body size. But on Easter, these empty seats will be full because there are going to be a bunch of people in Anchorage who are like, I'm a Christian, I should go to church on Easter. <laughs> and they're right. They should go to church on Easter. But we should be interceding on their behalf that God would do something in their heart and mind so that they come back the following week and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. Why? Not so our church numbers can grow. That's not what we're after. That's an outcome or a byproduct of what we're interceding for. What we're interceding for is the fact that God would birth salvation in their hearts and in their minds as the gospel is proclaimed on Easter Sunday. That's the goal. But we're not just going to be preach, we're not just going to be praying and interceding for the lost. We're going to be praying and interceding for those who are considering baptism. There is a young mom who is connected to our church. It's her church. It's this church. 
and we're going to be baptizing her on Easter Sunday. That means that spiritual warfare is going to be intensified in her life because she is considering doing something that is vital to the Christian life. And that's obedience to the fact that God has called all of His children to make a public proclamation that they would serve Him and Him only. It's like crossing the line in the sand and saying, I will serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. I will never turn back and serve the elementary principles of this world. I have put down what I once was, and I am no longer that, and I will pick up the things of my new Master and my new Savior. I will be put to death in a death and a burial like His when I go under the water, and I will be raised to newness of life symbolically when I come out of the water because I believe that is my future when Christ returns. I will be raised to newness of life just as He was raised to newness of life. I have a physical body to look forward to just as He was raised in a physical body. This is the hope of my salvation. We want them to know that they can confidently approach the baptismal and enter into the water with our support. Why? Because we're not just going to leave them once we dump them. We're going to promise to walk with them and to teach them all that He has taught and to teach them to obey all that He has taught so that they can be obedient, authentic disciples just as we strive to. And we can't do it alone and they can't do it alone. So the challenge this morning with Easter fast approaching, is to pray for those who will be present who are not regular attendees and to pray for those who are considering taking on the act of baptism. Because both need our prayers. So can we do that? Can we commit to that? Alright. Praise God. Finally, I'd just like to remind everybody that we are in a series on 1 Peter. This is sermon number 10. Or week number 10, however you want to look at it. We haven't done all 10 sermons consistently, but this is our 10th study in 1 Peter. So having said that, it's probably a good idea to pause here and to ask God's blessing as we prepare to open His Word. Father, we thank You for the fact that we can be here. For the fact that the sun is shining and the snow is melting. God, we thank You for the fact that You are seated on the throne and that You are reigning and ruling and that nothing escapes Your attention and that nothing catches You by surprise. We thank You, Father, that we can come together as a family, that we can open Your Word without persecution and we can study what it is that Your Word has to teach us so that Your character and Your nature can be revealed to us. Your desire for Your children can be revealed to us so that we can be equipped, Father, by the Word as Your Spirit works in our hearts and our minds to carry us through another day of this life so that we can image You well now and have hopes to image You well better in the future. We want to preach the Gospel with fervency and integrity and with zeal. We want to live the Gospel with fervency and integrity and zeal. Father, we know that the Word goes out to the non-believer so that they can be evangelized and come to life. And we know that the Word goes out for the saints so that they can be equipped to do the job that You have called them to do. So we pray for Your your blessing on both this morning, Lord. As we open Your Word, change us, Father. Transform us. Reform us, Lord. Conform us into Your image. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're in 1 Peter. Today's portion of the text comes out of chapter 2. 
We're going to be reading verse 4 through 8 today. This study we've been reading from the ESV. And Peter writes, beginning in verse 4, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You, yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. These five verses that we just read through in the second chapter of Peter's letter to the churches in the diaspora, these five verses are loaded. (laughs) They are loaded with points of connection. Not only are they loaded with points of connection, they are loaded with theological principles that different camps in the church have taken hold of and they aim at one another like guns with ammunition and they willfully pull the trigger at one another trying to prove who's right and who's wrong. When I say that these five verses are loaded, I mean that they're loaded. (laughs) But we're going to focus on points of connection right now. We'll get into the theology. But we're going to focus on points of connection right now because the points of connection help us. We are modern students of the text, separated from the text in its origin by thousands of years, by language, by geography, and by cultural customs. That's our life. It is separated from the text. We have no control over that. So what we can do by grabbing hold of and understanding the textual connections that exist, we can understand what was in the mind of Peter when he was writing the letter, and we can understand better what the audience would understand about what it was that Peter was communicating to us. We're talking about hermeneutics. The $20 word that describes how to study the Bible in its original context, in its historical, linguistic, geographical context. Because all of these things are important. If we don't know what it was that Peter intended when he wrote this, and we just want to come up with our own, like, uh, our own interpretation of it, and we don't care what was on his mind, we're going to have a skewed understanding, which means we're going to land with a skewed application. Raise your hand if you want a skewed understanding of the Bible. Nobody. Nobody wants a skewed understanding of the Bible. Nobody who loves Jesus, as a matter of fact. There are connections to the life of Christ. There are connections to the life of the Apostle Peter. And there are connections to the text of the Old Testament in these five verses. If we don't recognize that these connections exist... We're not really going to understand what Peter has in mind, what's on Peter's heart, what's informing his letter. So we're going to begin this morning by asking a simple question. Who is the living stone 
Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This is a vital question to be asking. Who is the living stone? We have to ask ourselves, is this a connection to the life of Christ? I just said that there are connections to the life of Christ, the life of Peter, and to the text in the Old Testament. Which category does this fit? Does it fit the category in connection to the life of Christ? Because in the mind of the author, verse 4 clearly seems to be a reference to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But we're going to be asking the question, why? Why did Peter decide to describe Jesus using metaphorical language? Why does Jesus use graphic imagery and describe our Messiah as a stone? Not everything in the Bible is intended to be read with a literal lens. We shouldn't have any problem with this as modern students of the text. When I say that Jesus is the door, we know that He's not a piece of wood that has been planed down and hewed to fit a jam. He's a human being. He didn't, he's not the byproduct of a crafted, carpentered log. Right? But when we look at the metaphor and we take the image of what it is that the author is trying to communicate, we understand that nobody gets to the Father except through Jesus. So now the metaphor and the graphic image make sense because Jesus is the way to the Father and nobody comes to the Father except through Him. So when He's described as the door, boom, the metaphor makes sense. It's a functional metaphor. What about when I say Jesus is the good shepherd? Well, hold on a second. We can't understand that literally because Jesus, the historical man from Nazareth, was a carpenter. So what was he, Matt? Was he a carpenter? Was he a shepherd? Ah, but check this out. When I start to talk about Jesus as the good shepherd and I say the sheep of his flock not only know his voice, but when they hear it, they follow it. That the good shepherd is willing to lay his life down for those that belong to him. Now, that title makes sense. The metaphor of Jesus as a good shepherd comes to life in the graphic image that we paint and it makes sense to us. God is my tower. He's my source of refuge and He's my strength. Hold on a second, Matt. Is God a stone building? No! But the text of the Hebrew Scripture says that He is our banner over us. That He is our protector and our provider. So when I describe Him as a personified building whom I retreat to when I need rest, when I need peace and protection from the enemy, boom! The metaphor comes to life. The image personified takes its shape in Christ. Are you guys picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. All right. So we're asking the question, why has Peter decided to describe Jesus using metaphorical language? Well, maybe Peter's drawing on a not-so-distant memory. Maybe the life experience of Peter is something that he's reaching back into, his memory, and he's reminded by what his mind has captured in his life experience and that's what he decides to share with the church that is suffering throughout the Roman provinces. If that's the case, 
we should be able to find something identifying Peter and the teaching and the testimony of Christ in the Scriptures to back this up, don't you think? Okay, James, can you stand up and read this one loud and proud for the congregation today? Hold on, let Brent get to you. You want to come up here so you can see it better? Yeah, come up here so you can see it better. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. We do our Bible studies as a family here. You guys are as involved as I am. Okay, so we just read, thank you James, we just read in Peter's letter that the cornerstone would be what? Rejected. We're looking for the connection and what it means for Christ as the cornerstone to be rejected. Well, Jesus Himself in teaching the twelve, only the twelve in this instance, He says, I must be rejected, I must be killed, but fear not, the Lord will raise the dead body in a new body. And that will be the proof that I have power and authority over death. And if I can be raised, then you can be raised. Sound good? And the disciples are like, the Messiah has to die? That can't happen. <laughs> Luke records very similar experience. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Two different Gospel accounts. The same testimony and teaching of the Master to the twelve disciples. So, it is possible that Peter's drawing on a not-so-distant memory because he would have been there to hear Jesus speak these words. I need a confident reader, so Tom, will you stand up for me please? And will you face the congregation? And will you read Mark chapter 12? Stick with him. He's reading Mark chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. Listen to the words that Tom is going to read. Thank you, Tom. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if we're looking for sufficient evidence, in my mind, the testimony and the teaching of Jesus, what we just read, what James read, what I read, and what Tom read, 
the testimony and the teaching of Jesus, what all of you heard being read, based on that, it's my opinion that we have identified some of the connection points in regard to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to include the metaphorical stone language which Peter applied in his letter. Did you hear Jesus himself refer to himself as the cornerstone? Okay. This demonstrates that we're not just dealing with the opinion of our author. This goes far beyond the opinion of our author. This was, in fact, how the Master, Jesus Himself, viewed Himself. It goes beyond how He viewed Himself to include the events that He would experience in His life that were up and coming. And if we reread the parable, we can actually look and say, wow, Jesus is not only discussing his own life's experience, he's including the entire history of Israel and all of the prophets in the telling of this story, and it will go through his own life. Jesus is a very good teacher, and in his testimony, we can see that he views himself as the cornerstone. Remember, we're looking for connection points to paint the backdrop so that we can understand what's on the heart and the mind of Peter, right? as he talks to his audience. So let's move on here. We've talked about connection points to Jesus. We should ask, in this portion of the text, are there any connection points in regard to the life of Peter? And some of you may be thinking, Matt, you just gave us a connection point in the life of Peter because he was present for the teaching and the testimony in Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. And I would say you're absolutely right. But I think we can do one better. So let's try. If we're going to ask the question, what are the connection points in the life of Peter, we may want to ask ourselves, who are the living stones? Who are the living stones that are being built up? Because in verse 5, Peter's attempting to draw a comparison between Christ as the living stone and the believers as living stones so we have the living stone singular and we have the living stones plural so again we may begin to wonder could it be that peter is drawing on a not so distant memory is peter's life experience going to inform his letter well i'm going to ask isaac to read matthew chapter 16 Verse 13 through 18, listen as, li- as, as Isaac reads to us. 16, sorry, verse 13 through 18. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 18, sorry. <laughs>
Amen. Thank you. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 18 gives us a narrative including Jesus and the life of Peter. And the words of the Master in the presence of the Twelve, speaking directly to Peter. He says, I tell you, Simon Barjona. Pause. Remember that Peter's not actually his real name. <laughs> Peter's the name that Christ gave him. Right? So he's reminding him of his birth name in this narrative. And he says, I tell you, Simon Barjona, you are Petros. Peter, and on this Petra rock, I will build my church. If we don't look at this in the original language, we don't get the play on words. But there is a play on words. Petros, rock, Petra, rock. Wait a second. Now I understand that there are more than a few interpretations that exist in regard to this specific passage, and that's okay. But isn't it interesting that Jesus decided to use similar imagery in the context of building his church? Because that's what he's using is imagery. Peter's not a literal rock. He's a human being. Yet he calls him Petra. So if we're focused on the imagery and we're asking what it's communicating in the metaphor, we can say that Jesus describes his church and its establishment in the future as a rock that will be built on this rock. Now, in my mind, that illustration is not far from living stones who are grounded on the chief cornerstone who are being built up into a spiritual house. The imagery is synonymous. It is similar. Now, we're going to admit that Peter is speaking of believers because he himself has just been told that he will be a rock grounded on the rock. So when we look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter, we can say that in verse 5, he's got to be speaking of the children of God. He has to be speaking of the church. And who is the church? The church is the bride of Christ. So we are the living stones who are going to be built up. An, a constant construction site. A constant project right husbands hate this idea but it is the reality of the church we are a constant ongoing lifelong project we are stones being built up into a spiritual house there's no arrival until we are glorified which means there is ongoing work to participate in so having covered two of the three different potentials in regard to connection points, right? The life of Christ and the life of Peter. Let's turn our attention to the text of the Old Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 8, to include verse 9 and 10, which we're not studying today, Peter either hints at or directly cites multiple passages from the Hebrew Scriptures. He does. For the sake of time, we'll deal with what I consider to be the most obvious. Alright, so in verse 6, we find a textual connection to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Can, uh, Carl, can you look up Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 for me and then hold what you got? In verse 7b, the author cites Psalm 118, verse 22. Jen, well actually, uh, Rob, not Woolsey. Rob, can you look up 
Psalm 118, verse 22. And in verse 8b, Peter alludes to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Jen, can you look up Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 for me? No, not this morning? Okay, that's fine. Uh, Dasha, you got it? Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Okay, so we're going to read these in, these in this order because this is the order that Peter cites them in. But we're not going to read them in his letter. We're going to see right now that he's drawing on the text of the Old Testament. The text of the Hebrew Scriptures is informing his letter, which means that he himself is familiar with his own Bible. So go ahead, Carl. Stand up for us. Loud and proud. Read Isaiah 28, 16. Read that last line. Whoever believes will not act hastily. The NLT says, whoever believes will need not fear. Right? So putting your faith in the cornerstone equates to a life that you will not be shaken in. Right? Let's see, the next one is Psalm 118, verse 22. Rob, you got that one? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There you go. And then finally, we have Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Thank you, Dasha. A snap and a snare. Trap. A trap and a snare. So these are, these are the ideas that Peter is uh, got in his mind as he's reading and thinking about the text of the Old Testament and he's considering the role of the Messiah. He can be the cornerstone that can hold you up or he can be a trap and a snare that can cause you to stumble. Now, Peter's not just making this stuff up. He's looking to the history of Israel and he's drawing on the texts that belong to him and his people. So at this point, it's clear, right? Peter is comfortable with the text of the Old Testament. He's so comfortable with it that it informs almost all of his letter. If you've been with us for the study, we've been talking about how all throughout Chapter 1 and leading into chapter 2, we're like, look, it's the Old Testament that informs what it is that Peter thinks, and it's the Old Testament that informs what it is that Peter has to say to the church that's suffering. So as modern students of the text, it's my job to remind us that we need to be aware of these different types of textual connections because they exist. If we're not aware of these types of textual connections, then we can't connect the dots. Right? Little children are taught to what? Connect the dots. As little children of God, we need to know how to connect the dots in the text. And we have to look for connection points and we have to be able to call them out when we read the Bible or else we're going to miss the heart of the author. It's my hope that we find these quick surveys to be a helpful tool as we attempt morning after morning and day after day to wrap our minds around what it is that the authors of the text are after. I care more what they're after than what we're after. I want what they're after to inform what we should be in pursuit of. 
So having discussed some of the potential connection points in an attempt to understand the backdrop of what it is that Peter's writing, can you guys read this next slide for me out loud? Please, I'd like everybody to read this together. Now, New Testament scholar Peter Davids notes that conversion takes place when we come to Christ. Our conversion takes place when we come to Christ. It's in that moment, it's in that very moment when we come to Him, the living stone, Jesus the Messiah, that we ourselves are made to be like living stones. So, conversion takes place when we come to Christ. The imagery of Peter's metaphor is consistent with what he has already previously written in chapter 1, verse 22 through 23, and we have studied this as a family. Peter makes the statement in verse 23, open your Bibles and look at it, since you have been born again. What a beautiful statement. Church, you've been born again. Amen? Are we excited about the fact that God has changed us and He's still changing us? Or are we asleep at the wheel? Since you have been born again. This statement should cause us to pause. Peter, why have I been born again? Not just the fact that I have been born again, but why have I been born again? Now we ask this question because we find the answer in the preceding verse in verse 22 of chapter 1. Peter says, you have been born again by your obedience to the truth. Well, what does it mean to be obedient to the truth? What is the truth? Well, Peter would say, the truth is the good news. The good news is the gospel of God. That's the truth. It's the very message that was being preached to my audience. It's the very message that's being preached to you this morning. It's the same message. That's the good news. That's the truth. That's what you've been obedient to. The proclamation of the gospel. You responded properly to the proclamation of the good news of God. Foy Valentin writes that the text of Scripture will never deny human freedom or reject personal responsibility. I agree with him. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. 100%, no doubt, seated on the throne, reigning and ruling. Eternally, he is undefeated. He has been challenged, but he has never lost a battle that he has waged war in. He is the God of war. He is the God over war, and he stands undefeated. Is God sovereign? Yes. We need to understand that Peter says it was according to his great mercy that he, God the Father, caused us to be born again. And all of this was accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, we are required to exercise a proper response to the proclamation of the gospel. Remember, Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Quoting Isaiah. Why are their feet beautiful? Why does the gospel need to be preached? So that they can respond. How will they hear if nobody preaches, Paul says? How can they respond if they don't hear the message, Paul says? 
Therefore, you must go and preach the good news. Live the gospel. We're required to exercise a proper response to the proclamation of the gospel. If you are in here this morning and you are a child of God, you have exercised a proper response to the preaching of the gospel. You have bent the knee and you proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. You identify with the reality that His name is the name that was given that is above every name and there is no other name in which salvation can be found. That's why Peter can write... It's through our obedience, chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. It's through our obedience to the truth that we have been born again. And we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word was the good news that was preached to you, Peter says. The Gospel of God includes both the sovereign call of God the invitation of God, and the proper response of humanity. We're talking about covenantal relationship here. We're not talking about authoritarian dictatorship. We're talking about covenantal relationship. The vassal and the suzerain. The greater and the lesser. The greater sets the terms and the lesser says, I agree to this type of relationship. I will be loyal to the terms of this covenant. Thank you for inviting me into this and I will serve you wholeheartedly till the end of my days. I will place the ear of my lobe, the lobe of my ear against the doorpost and you can drive the all through it so that I can be identified with you and you alone this is the terms of the covenant that god has established he's not an authoritarian dictator he is one who has invited the whole of humanity to be in right relationship with him because he made a way this is why the gospel includes both the sovereign call of god and the proper response of humanity this is why peter can write as you come to him Do you agree with Peter or do you disagree with Peter? That's the question. Peter writes, as you come to him. And this graphic image identifies with the different metaphors that Peter uses in a consistent form. Just as the seed in chapter 1 is imperishable, so the stones are living. The seed is imperishable and the stones are living. Why? Because we are the offspring of the same producer of both. Christ is the producer of the seed. The seed came through the preaching of the word. Christ is the, the, he's the living stone and the, the, and the living stones are grounded on him. Graphic imagery being applied and it has embedded in it literal truth claims. Do we understand that our transition, our regeneration, our transformation is only the beginning? That's step number one. We don't just say, I got saved. Let's kick it. No. I got saved. It's time to go to work, baby. Let's do something about it. God has given me a function and a purpose. He didn't save me from something and not give me a job to do. He's equipped me with gifts so that I can what? Be a living stone grounded on the chief cornerstone in the house that is constantly being built up. Do we believe it? Being regenerated is the inaugural work of God in His beloved children. Coming to Him may be described as phase one. If you've ever done a house project, you know there are different phases, right? 
coming to him is phase one. Whereas being built up, this may be descriptive of a phase two. However, it should be noted that phase two exists to point us to our new God-given purpose and function. In Christ we have been made alive, amen? In Christ we are being built up, amen? And Peter tells us that the whole point of this is to A, be a holy priesthood so that we might B, offer spiritual sacrifices. That's the whole point. You don't get saved and get to sit down. You don't get saved and get to hit the cruise control. You get saved so that you can participate in the priesthood and participation in the priesthood equates to offering spiritual sacrifices. Our purpose is to be Our function is to offer. Okay? Our purpose is to be. Our function is to offer. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Our purpose as the bride of Christ falls directly in line with the heart of God, everybody. The heart of God. Just as God initially desired to make ethnic Israel a kingdom of priests, so now he desires that his bride would function in the same manner and capacity. Our purpose is to be God's representatives, his imagers here on earth. We are his vice regents. We are his priests. God has called his bride to be a light for the nations so that his message of salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That's what Isaiah says, and Paul preaches it with fervency. If Isaiah wrote it and Paul believes it, so do I. So now that we've outlined our purpose as priests, let's turn our attention over to our function. Because we know our role, we know our office, but do we know how to function in our role? That's the question. Do we care how God wants us to function in our role? That's a good question. That's something we should be asking ourselves often. Not only honoring the fact that God has made me a priest, but desiring to fulfill the role in a way that honors God, gives glory to God, and brings joy to the whole of humanity. Now i got to admit, initially when I read this, offer spiritual sacrifices, I had no idea what Peter was talking about. And it's okay to come to the congregation as the pastor and be like, I read this and I didn't really understand what he meant. That just meant hit the books, Matt. (laughs) Do some research, Matt. If you love God, pursue God, Matt. If you want to know God and you want to understand God, maybe open up a book and spend some time reading about the God you claim to love and the God you claim to be in relationship with. Okay, so I had to do that. (laughs) In hindsight... I think that I find myself more thankful this morning for the Psalter than ever before. And again, Brent and I did not collude. Our Bible studies are Wednesday and on Wednesday nights are dealing with the Psalms right now. Right now, five weeks into our Bible study on the Psalms, and a graduate of Wayland Baptist University, I am more thankful for the Psalter now than I have ever been before. Because it taught me what it means to offer spiritual sacrifices. The Psalms, for me, brought to life with certainty 
the reality that spiritual sacrifices were a common practice for those who lived under the old covenant. Where I was like, wait a second. I thought they did animal sacrifices under the old covenant. And then I read the Psalms and it was like, no, no, no. God wants spiritual sacrifices during the Mosaic covenant as well. Not just in the new greater covenant, the covenant of God's grace. God has always been interested in spiritual sacrifices. And I was like, what? How did I miss this? Peter's not just making this stuff up. I was like, praise God. This is not a new idea. Spiritual sacrifices are not something that Peter was like, well, we're not going to do animal sacrifices anymore, so let me just make something up that sounds good. No, again, he reached back into the history of his people, and he drew on the text of the Old Testament, and he encouraged the church. It's a part of his history because it's a part of Israel's history, which means that by proxy in Christ, it's a part of our history. So let's check it out. Let's look at what Matt learned and see if you guys can learn what I learned. You guys probably already knew this because you're a smart group of people. Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. Wow, an attitude of gratitude is a sacrificial form of sacrifice. You don't even have to get past the first line in the first example and you're looking at spiritual sacrifices. Make thankfulness. This is not slaughtering an animal. This is an attitude. Keep the vows you made to the Most High. The words that you speak have integrity to follow through on these things. This is an action item. This is a form of spiritual sacrifice. Let's go to the next one. The sacrifice you desire is a what? You will not reject a what? And who's he speaking to? This is David. (laughs) Psalm 51. Called out in front of Israel by Nathan the prophet for his sin. And what does David do? He doesn't go run to the altar and tell the high priest, slaughter a bull for me. He drops to his knees and he acknowledges that it is a broken spirit, an attitude here. A broken spirit and a repentant heart. God is not so concerned with the slaughtering of bulls and rams as much as he is interested in your heart posture. I can trick everybody in the room if all I have to do is walk to the altar, drop some money, buy the bull, slaughter the bull, and go home and do whatever I want when no one's looking. But an attitude that it equates to, and a heart posture that equates to a broken spirit and a repentant heart, God will not reject. God will not reject that. What about the next one? We're talking about spiritual sacrifices here, not animal sacrifices. All in the text of the Old Testament. Remember, the Psalter is Israel's historical hymnal. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. There it is again, an attitude of gratitude. And sing joyfully about His glorious acts. Wow, I'm pretty sure we sang songs of praise this morning thanks to Kirsten and Ethan's leading us. And we were what? In the singing of the songs, we were offering acts of spiritual sacrifices to God. I'm no longer a slave to fear because of what? Because I am a child of God. Why have I been made a child of God? Because He lived, died, and rose again. Through faith in Jesus, I've been made a child of God. 
We sing joyfully about his glorious acts. What about in the Old Testament? Well, when the waters crashed over Pharaoh and his army, what did Israel do? Miriam led them in a song. For those of us reading through the chronological um, order of the Bible as a church together, we just finished Joshua and Judges. What did Deborah and Barak do with Israel when they won the victory? They sang a song. Right? What does Mary do in uh, the discovery of her, of her, of her, of her uh, supernatural conception, the Magnificent of Mary, the Song of Mary, she busts forth in praise to God ver- ver- verbally and vocally. Sing joyful about His glorious acts, what God has accomplished. Acts of spiritual praise. I think there's one more. Accept my prayer. Prayer. This is a form of spiritual sacrifice to God as an incense offered to you and my upraised hands. My upraised hands as an evening offering. How many of us raise our hands when we worship the Lord? You would be offering two forms simultaneously in joyful praises to the Lord that were recounting His glorious acts. Two acts! Maybe this is why Paul tells Timothy in the pastoral epistles, it is my desire that men pray with holy hands lifted everywhere. How about it, men? How often are we falling to our knees and raising the hands that God has consecrated as we pray? Are we doing it? If we're not, then we're not being obedient to the text. And this is an Old Testament principle that Paul picks up in the New Testament principle. And it's one that Peter must have been familiar with. Because he's talking about spiritual forms of sacrifice here. After reading through the Psalms, I was like, Matt, you're an idiot. How could you forget? You're so stupid. You've read this story 20 million times probably. In fact, I think I read it three times in the last six months with my wife together, either in bed or in the car as we were driving. And I was like, I forgot! We forget so often, don't we? I mean, we do. I was like, didn't the prophet Samuel have something to say about this? Whole idea of spiritual sacrifices? I'm pretty sure he did, right? Let's put the next slide up. There it is. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? It's almost rhetorical. But he gives us the answer. He says, no, he doesn't. His delight, his great delight is those who are obedient to the voice of the Lord. Behold, this is like, pay attention. To obey is better than sacrifice. Samuel lived during the Mosaic legislation where sacrifices were required to be in right relationship with God. And here the prophet, the man who represents God to the nation of Israel during the theocracy says, hey, Israel, to obey is better than sacrifice. To offer a form of spiritual sacrifice is better to God than a form of physical sacrifice. And to listen better than the fat of rams. God does not want your physical sacrifice if your heart is not in the right place. This is why all throughout the prophets, he's like, shut up, Israel! Stop burning bulls on the altar! Judah, you guys don't love me! Stop! It's noise in my ears. Turn it off! Spiritual 
spiritual sacrifice. I think that Dennis Edwards captures it beautifully when he writes that just as the house of God in verse 5 is spiritual and not material, being made of living stones and not limestone, so the sacrifices are immaterial and consist in having a heart purified by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Here's a second connection to chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. He goes on to say, thus the sacrifices, the spiritual sacrifices, should be viewed as actions and attitudes performed by those who have been cleansed by God for God. Have we been cleansed by God for God? Then we must answer the question, how frequently are we offering forms of spiritual sacrifice? Spiritual sacrifices are synonymous with actions and attitudes such as loyalty. Well, what does it mean to be loyal? Well, it means to have a life that is daily devoted to and lived out for God. That's what it means to be loyal. What else is it synonymous with? It's synonymous with praise and thanksgiving, as we read in the Psalms. But it's also synonymous with a well-rounded, real-world ministry to those in need. This is where I look out over the congregation and I'm like, I'm so thankful for people like Celeste and James. Because you guys remind me that we need a real world ministry that ministers to those in need. We need to look at the marginalized and the struggling and the downtrodden and the downcast in our society like the moms in young lives because the world looks down on them and we need to say, we don't look down on you. We love you. You are valuable. Your child is valuable. You are both precious in the sight of God. And because you are precious in the sight of God, we want to love you. Whether you return the love or not, let us love you. Because we have been loved when we don't deserve it. This is one of the greatest forms of spiritual sacrifice. This is why James says true religion is ministry to the widow and the orphan. It's an attitude and an action that is birthed out of a heart posture. We're not trying to check a box around here. We legitimately want to love because we've been loved. Real world ministry. It's a form of spiritual sacrifice. And we have people in this church who live their lives to accomplish that daily. You don't have the opportunity in this church to say, I don't know what it looks like anymore. You've been educated. Now you'll you'll be held liable by God. When the children of God offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ, we can be assured that because of Christ, we and what we do will be acceptable to God. When we offer our spiritual sacrifices through Jesus, they are acceptable to God. Only through Jesus. We're right back to the door metaphor. We're right back to the image. Dr. Keener reminds us that such sacrifices are pleasing to God solely based on the reality that it was God who exalted Jesus. And in the exaltation of Jesus, He made Him the only acceptable mediator between God and the whole of humanity. There is one man who stands between God and humanity as a mediator, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Peter and Paul's theology agrees. It is the finished work of Christ which grants us access to our new God-given purpose and function. 
And our purpose is the priesthood. Our, our purpose is the temple. And our function is the priesthood operating in it. Without Him, we are hopeless. But with Him, with God, we are blessed to be both living stones who make up the temple and the holy priesthood who operate in it. Apart from Him, we're hopeless. But with Him, nothing is impossible. This means that we have a choice to make, church. We can choose to believe in Him or we can choose to reject Him. Can you guys close your eyes while I read verse 6 through 8a? Just listen to this. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Go ahead and open your eyes. As Peter reaches back into the text of the Old Testament to communicate the literal truth claims to the new early birth church in the Roman Empire, the same truths that he's communicating and are clear to them should be clear to us. Whoever believes will be honored. Whoever chooses to disbelieve and reject will be dishonored. We're talking honor-shame culture here. Ancient Near East, first century. We're not talking pragmatic Western individualistic thought process. We're talking about God and what He's going to do. And He will honor those who believe and He will shame those who disbelieve. The warning has been proclaimed. Can you guys read this for me, please? After reading this, some of us may be asking the question, why would Matt tell us that we have a choice to make when the close of verse 8 seems to indicate the very opposite? Why would Matt stand on stage and lie to us as if we have a choice to make when verse 8 appears to indicate the very opposite? Well, first let me say that you need to be asking questions like that. You need to be challenging every word that comes off of the pulpit. You need to question everything because every human being who communicates from the pulpit is fallible. Which means they could be wrong about what it is that they're saying. So first, let me say that we need to be asking questions like this. Second, let me remind you that the church holds different views on how passages like this should be interpreted. There's not one interpretation to this text. There's many. And three, because of the different views, I'm going to encourage you as your local shepherd to study it out for yourself and come to your own conclusions. You shouldn't just be like, well, I'm going to believe whatever Matt says because I could be wrong. 
In fact, I've changed my view on how to interpret this text. I no longer believe what I once did. And maybe in a couple years, I'll change my mind again. And I would call that God growing me. Now having said all of that, allow me to share my view with you this morning. It's my understanding that we need to make a decision on what it was that was destined. We have to ask the question, was it the stumbling or was it the disobedience? What was destined? Now, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg and Dennis Edwards, in both their commentaries, address the issue of ambiguity that exists in the Greek. Now, if you have two New Testament scholars who are telling the church that there is ambiguity in the Greek when it comes to this verse, you know what that equates to? Lack of clarity. (laughs) A lack of clarity. Hence, the different interpretations that the church has held all throughout church history. Because you got scholars on both sides saying it's this way, and you got the other side saying no, it's this way, and then you got the fringe guys out here saying they're both wrong, it's this way. It's not clear. Now, my hope is that we hold a theology that is both grounded in the text and practically applicable in our daily lives. That's my goal. I want a goal where I can actually live my theology out. Do you? I don't want a goal where my theology belongs in an ivory tower, but when it comes down to the practical everyday life, it doesn't really apply. What I believe about God and His character and His nature, I'm just going to chalk it up to mystery. Or I'm just going to chalk it up to it's obedience, but it doesn't really have a necessity. God's called me to do it, but there's no reason for me to do it. I don't want that type of theology. I don't think the text of Scripture gives us that type of theology. God has called us for a mission. He's called us to the Great Commission. He's given us a mandate. He's equipped us to fulfill the mandate. And He's told us to what? To go. Why would He call us to do that if we were ill-equipped for the mission or if the mission didn't really have a purpose? These are all questions that we should be asking ourselves. God wants us to participate, but you're not necessary. Well, then he didn't really invite me into the process of building the kingdom. He didn't really invite me into the process of being a living stone grounded on the chief cornerstone. He didn't invite me into a priesthood because a priesthood has a function. Does God need me? No. But did he sovereignly choose to create me and include him in his plan of salvation? Yes. You can't get around it. So let's address this. I told James to be praying for me because if I can't describe to you what a textually grounded theology looks like that can be practically applied in the daily life, then I don't have any business talking about it. So why are we able to look at this and say, you can hold to the fact that Anybody and everybody was destined to both stumble and or disobey. And they need not be damned to reprobation. Why can I tell you that we can look at this and say all created 
beings have been destined to either stumble or disobey. And it doesn't mean that God predestined or double predestinated one group for glory and one group for damnation. Why can I say that with confidence? Well, let me explain to you. We are the created. We already talked about this. God is species unique. He is the one who is holy and set apart. Only God is sustainably perfect. That's what makes Him God. Any created being is less than. Therefore, they are capable of a fall. Given the amount of time, inevitably they will. For the sole purpose that they are not God and they are reliant on God. If you could be sustainably perfect, there would be no need for the precious blood of the Lamb to be spilled on your behalf. So as a created being, you can be destined for both the stumbling and the disobedience and not have to worry that God created you for damnation. Because He will judge the living and the dead, what Peter says in chapter 1, based on what they do. Not on His decision. Read it. He is in... Uh, He is a God who is an impartial judge. He is both Father and Judge, and He will judge the living and the dead according to their deeds. Do we believe Peter? I do. The created is incapable of being sustainably perfect. Therefore, they were by proxy destined to fall. The life of Peter is the perfect example to build my theology on. We read it today. Isaac read it today. Matthew chapter 16. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And what does the Messiah do? He blesses him and says, you did not come up with this answer on your own. The Father gave you this answer. This means that Peter is receiving from the Father. Okay, if Peter is receiving from the Father in Matthew chapter 16, how come just a little bit later in Matthew chapter 16, he's telling Christ himself, you can't die! And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are hindering the will and the work of God. Stumble and fall. Disobedience to the will of the, of the Father. Peter is the perfect example in a practical application. Think about it. Last Supper. The, sh- the shepherd's going to be stricken and the sheep are going to scatter. If they all abandon you, I will never abandon you. Peter, this evening, <laughs> before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Never, Lord! I'll be loyal till the end. (laughs) And then he swears to God that he doesn't know the man. Three times. And the rooster crows. Stumble and fall. Disobedience. That's not it. We can still talk about Peter. Peter, do you love me? Oh Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, it breaks my heart that you're asking me. Tend to my flock. Peter, do you love me? Oh, a third time? Feed my sheep. The Spirit comes on Pentecost and Peter stands obedient. Proclaims the Gospel of God and thousands are saved. When there's pressure in Jerusalem, he goes to Caesarea Philippi. 
He violates Torah. He evangelizes the Gentile. Cornelius is saved and all of his household and all present. But then some time goes by and Peter's traveling through to the churches that Paul has planted in Galatia. And Peter himself, post-Pentecost, after preaching to the Gentiles and after entering the Gentile home and violating Torah and eating with the defiled, he causes division in Paul's churches in Galatia at the Lord's table. Stumble and fall. Disobedience. Okay. Peter wrote this letter. The very man I'm talking about wrote this letter. So ask yourself, is his theology going to be a pie-in-the-sky ivory tower theology that is going to be masked in mystery? Or is it going to be something that he believes you can actually live out? Because he's living it out. In the end, Peter is very pastoral in the letter. What does he do? He doesn't say there are two groups of people, the damned and the saved. No, he says, preach the gospel, live the gospel, and invite people to bend the knee to the Lord. The same way I was invited, the same way you were invited. Preach the same gospel that saved me, preach the same gospel that saved you. Do we believe that evangelism works? If we say yes, then there must be a need for it. And if there's a need for it, it's because God sovereignly decreed that we would help build the kingdom. A living stone grounded on the cornerstone. It's a practical theology that we're after. It's a theology that's grounded in the text of Scripture. You cannot strive to evangelize if you honestly have a theology that believes it's without purpose. I have no effect but I will be obedient simply because He's called me. The Lord has called me to a task I cannot fulfill. You can disagree with me. But I'm going to bring it back to, is your theology grounded in the text and can you practically apply it in your life? And don't violate your theology. Live your theology. Why? Because that's what Peter's calling us to do. Our purpose and our function priesthood and operation in the temple do we actually desire to be a holy priesthood do we actually desire to carry out and to fulfill our role because if we desire that then we need to recognize that God has called us to be a light to the nations to proclaim his gospel and to take his gospel to the ends of the earth because Matthew chapter 24 says that when the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth it is at that time it is at that time when the Lord will see fit to return. And the gospel has not gone out to the ends of the earth. There are many unreached people groups. So we have to know and we have to believe that God has called us to fulfill a purpose and to live in a function that complements the purpose. Amen? Amen. We want to be living stones, church. Living stones grounded on the chief cornerstone father we thank you for the text we thank you that you have called us to participate in the fulfillment of your will did you need us no you were fully complete prior to the creation of the universe 
And yet you decided to create it anyway. You knew what would happen in the creation of the universe. And so you made a way before the foundations were set so that humanity could be reconciled back to you. You gave us your special revelation in the midst of your natural revelation. What can be known about you has been made plain to us. The things that have been written about you have been written so that we might believe. We have been called to preach and proclaim the gospel. Help us to do all of these things and to do all of these things well, Father. Help us to be living stones grounded on the cornerstone. Help us to offer daily spiritual sacrifices. Help us to recognize that you want to honor those who believe, but you are not fearful of shaming those who reject you. Help us to remember, Lord, that as created beings, our destiny is not a fate that has been sealed because you have given us the opportunity now to respond to the gospel. And the author of Hebrews would say, if you feel the work of the Spirit, do not harden your heart. We take that warning very seriously, Father. And so I pray, Lord, that if there is someone in the audience today who is not a servant of the, of, of the Creator of the heavens and the earth, that you would illuminate their heart and their mind through the preaching of the Word, through the fellowship of the saints, so that they can come to the knowledge of the fact that they need a Savior and that they can be saved only in You. And for those of us who are saved, God, by Your grace and Your mercy, first we praise You and then we thank You that as the Gospel goes out, You equip us to better image You for today and for tomorrow and for every day after that. God, be with us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.